Hello and welcome to episode three of Club Eclectica, the podcast where I talk about this and that and everything in between. And today uh, we are talking about Tintin. And as some of you may know, uh, my Instagram handle is Tintinfellow, and that is because I'm a huge fan of the comic book character Tintin. And today my very special guest is a chap who has a Tintin podcast. So if you'd like to introduce yourself, uh, that would be great. Yes, thank you very much, Michael. I've got to say, I understand how uh, how important and how fond you are for Tintin. So I've got to say, I'm very honoured that I'm the, the the guest chosen to discuss that. But yes, my name is Alex and I am the host of a, uh, a Tintin podcast called Radio Tintin, in which I primarily review the Tintin albums by Urge and sort of dive into the historical and social context of each one but also explore some supplementary Tintin material, things like that. So um, it's a, a, a comic book I'm obviously very interested and uh, very excited to talk about with you today, Michael. Excellent. Well, I mean, I obviously came across you on um, on the podcast uh, searching apps, whatever you call it, because um, I was looking for a podcast about Tintin and I've listened obviously to several of them and, and it's it's excellent, if especially if you, you already know about Tintin, but should we start right at the beginning? Uh, and who is, or who or what is Tintin? Because I think maybe a lot of our listeners, especially those who are not from Europe, might not really be um, familiar with, with Tintin, the comic. Do you, do you want to give us a sort of brief overview of, of who and who he is, how it started? Yeah. So um, Tintin is is the name of the lead character in the comic series, The Adventures of Tintin. We call it comics, um, but of course, the artist uh Georges Remy pen name Urge was writing in Belgium and Belgium has a very different um comic tradition so whereas we think of comics we think in the western context we think of small sort of comics you get in a rack at a newsagent or something these were uh serialized in magazines and newspapers and then later collected into what's commonly called albums um so there's a core canon of i guess uh 24 well 23 complete tintin albums and 24 total tintin albums and um essentially it follows the adventures of this character called tintin who is ostensibly he's a reporter um it was created as a means for the character for the author to um sort of explore different worlds um the author was a very very world curious person and um this character was primarily his way of exploring these different places that he'd read so much about. He was stuck behind a desk um, and he saw this as a means to, I guess, explore these different societies, these different cultures. And as we might get into at the beginning, there was a very strong political aspect of these adventures as well. Um, For his purpose, it may well have been to explore different cultures, but his publishers and his editors uh, certainly wanted to push a very particular um, political message. And that's prominent in a lot of the early Tintin stories and is a cause for some of the controversy that surrounds the character today. But essentially he was a reporter and throughout these adventures, he would just go on these, these, well, these different adventures in different countries, some of which were real countries, some of which were fictional countries. And the, uh, the genre of, of stories, you know, changes from, you know, spy stories to straight out adventure stories to sort of, you know, more thrilling um, grounded stories to more out there and fantastical ones. Um, so there's, you know, a huge range of of kinds of stories represented in these albums. And as you were saying before, Michael, it's quite fascinating. I certainly enjoy it seeing 
the the world that's reflected in the Tintin albums and how that changes over this this wide um these this decade long time that Urshe um wrote these albums and sort of really really interesting and sort of why I wanted to make this podcast was explore the world at the time and how that changed over time um but that's uh how's that as a primer for a for yeah, Tintin yeah yeah I think I think that sounds that sounds very good I mean it's um the way it started was uh, Hergé got a job uh, at a children's supplement uh, for a sort of conservative newspaper in uh, in Belgium. Uh, and the children's sup- supplement was called Le Petit Vientième, which means the uh, small 20th, because uh, I think the paper was Le Vientième Siècle, which means the 20th century. And the guy in charge of that newspaper was a sort of rather uh, conservative uh, Catholic, um, well, a priest of, of, of some kind, sort of a high up priest. And he... I think suggested to Ajay that maybe he could do a children's series that could be serialized in the paper and would sort of um, show good, uh, probably good Catholic conservative values. So he was asked, I think, in the first uh, the first sort of book or or, um, series to go to the Soviet Union, which, of course, at the time, communism was the big enemy. And this was 1929. So a long, long time ago, nearly 100 years ago. So Ajay, having never been to the Soviet Union or anywhere particularly exotic, I think read a book by an American chap journalist who'd been there and then decided just to put in all the cliches and send Tintin off to the Soviet Union where he has all sorts of adventures um, and uh, obviously defeats the, uh, the the Russians, the communists in the end and, and, and escapes. I mean, he doesn't destroy the Soviet Union, but that's uh, he obviously comes out the hero. And it's quite funny, fun to see because the first book, as I said, was the first story was in 1929 and the last book was 1976. So that's a period of 47 years where he made these books and just seeing the the change in his drawing style and the style of the stories, how he matures and the details and everything is, is one of the things I find so fascinating about, about Hergé and the books. Um, because they're, to me, they're historical documents. I mean, you see what, what a, a, you know, a, a typical conservative Belgian's views were of uh, the Soviet Union in the 1920s. Uh, and then you see, yeah, going up through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, you see how how things change. Um, and as we say, some of them are, are slightly politically difficult because the next book he did after the Soviet Union one was Tintin in the Congo. And at the time, the Congo was a Belgian uh, colony and looked at with today's eyes, it's uh, very problematic. Um, but again, it, it was, um, it was uh, from the times, uh, and I guess, again, he'd never been, been to the Congo. Um, but how, how did you get into Tintin originally? Because you're in Australia, and I, I, I have the impression that he's not that well-known uh, there. Yeah, certainly since I've been, I've been doing the podcast, it's, um, it's very interesting how many people from... Um, primarily non-English speaking backgrounds in, in Europe, in Asia, in South America and Africa, all say they grew up on Tintin and it was just something that everyone read. Like as a, as a young person, you just grew up reading Tintin. And in my experience, that certainly wasn't the case in Australia. Um, it was, it's very much more of a, I guess, an acquired interest. Um, so I guess I first became aware. Um, I think probably my first exposure was actually watching um, a, a rerun of the uh, the early '90s television series that they made, mm, um, yeah. which is actually quite a quite an accurate, usually quite a, an accurate um, uh, 
retelling of Hergé's stories. You know, it's a bit, it's a bit cheesy. It's a bit sort of goofy. It's, it's one of those mediums that's, you know, you can only really be truly appreciated in its original form, which is, you know, flat on paper. It sort of loses something when it's animated. But I remember thinking, oh, look, you know, this, this, these are quite like as goofy and as, you know, as weird as this, this protagonist with his weirdly redhead quiff and his dog and his sailor that he's hanging around with. As weird as it is, it was, I found it quite, you know, these are quite, you know, interesting, quite tight stories. So that would be my first exposure. And then I think it would have been, um, it was actually my brother. My brother got a, a gift from from one of our, um, one of my uncles who handed him, you know, one of those uh, collected editions. It's got like three Tintin stories in there. And so that was sort of family's first exposure to Tintin as as he originally was. And that brother actually um, is my, my youngest brother. He became sort of the Tintin head of the family. He was the one mm. who really loved Tintin. Okay. He read all the stories. He was out there, you know, pretending to be Tintin. And so we were sort of aware of Tintin. We, I, I knew about Tintin, but um, you know, he was sort of like it was a bit like a bit of a joke, like this, because you know, there's a perspective that it's not really cool. It's not like Batman. It's not like James no. Bond. It's sort of this weird earnestness and wholesomeness. Like I guess we thought it was a bit of a joke, but then sort of as I got older, you mm. sort of and you begin to appreciate things as they are. And I sort of, you know, began to relook at these, these albums my brother had. I'm like, Oh, look at this like beautiful artwork. Look at this, like quite really exciting um, stories he's got, you know, going on here. And I think when you, when you just appreciate, you know, something as it's meant to be and not trying to look any into it, mm-hmm. you know, it's not trying to be something cool. It's just a great adventure. And when I started reading those, I really got hooked and um, I've been yeah, a big fan and a big devotee of, of Hergé and Tintin ever since. But they're quite, quite, um, quite late in, in my, in my, you know, maturity. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I first, I was introduced to Tintin when I was like, oh, I don't know, six, seven years old. My, my mum gave me a, a Tintin book, King Otakar's Scepter. And um, I think I just accepted the character without any questions. And certainly in Europe, I grew up in Denmark. I mean, he's just he's just always been there. But it's one of those things when you when you sort of try and step back and you look at him, he's quite hard to explain. So like you say, he's not a superhero. He hasn't got any superpowers. He's just this. I mean, what is he? Even? Is he is he is he a, is he a, is he a teenager? Is he a young adult? I mean, I'm assuming he's a young adult, but he's got this funny little quiff. He wears plus fours. He's got this little white dog. And then in the later books, he gets this friend who's this older chap who's a captain. Um and they and they sort of live together at, at, at one point and and but you just take that that's just completely normal that's that's the way the characters are and Tintin himself he's sort of a, he's sort of a bit of a cipher he doesn't actually have much personality sort of things happen to him he gets involved in various adventures and then he just sort of goes along with the flow and I mean often you know comes out victorious and whatever whatever um, and you know people he's fighting and stuff but. Um, it's really, I find it was the other characters that, that really started giving the books life. I mean, Captain Haddock wasn't introduced for, well, a fair, fair few books in and started off as this sort of alcoholic, irascible character who, I mean, so they toned down the alcoholism a bit later in the stories, but he always liked to drink. And you've got the, the Thompsons, well, pe- people call them the Thompson twins, although technically they're not twins, but they just, they look at identical they're identical looking uh, detectives with bowler hats and black suits. But the only way you can tell the difference, as I'm sure you know, is the moustaches. One has got a like, tiny little ends to his moustache. Uh, in the original, they're called Dupont and Dupont. One spelled with a D at the end, one with a T. And the one who has little points on the end of his moustache, he's the Dupont who ends up on a T, apparently. Uh, you've got Professor Calculus, who's another great ca- um, character who's this sort of um, 
hard of hearing professor who comes up with all sorts of weird and wonderful uh, inventions and quite often the stories revolve around some of his his inventions um but yeah trying to explain who Tintin is um I remember a few years ago Steven Spielberg made that um Tintin film with with Peter Jackson um and obviously that was for an international audience and I'm not sure how well it did because I think in America especially people were like well who is this guy? What, what is he? I mean, yeah, again, he's, he's not a superhero. He's, he's not got any special powers. What the heck is he wearing? What's going on with his hair? Who's this old captain dude? So, um, and I remember before it coming up being really worried. I thought, oh gosh, this is going to be rubbish. But actually, actually it was, I, I thought it was a pretty good film. They, they mashed up, I think it was three different stories, uh, but it came out quite well. It was, I think what they call motion capture, where they had real actors uh, with, little things on their faces and then they and then they sort of animated the mo- so the movements are real but but um but they're animated animated figures but um yeah the thing about Tintin is I mean the one I just mentioned there my first Tintin book King Otakar Scepter that's one of the ones where he starts getting a bit political well there's one um there's one a few before that called the Blue Lotus which well if we just go through so we've had Tintin yeah, in the, the Soviet Union Tintin in Congo then it's Tintin in America Again, a story where Aj had never been to America and again be- based it on, well, the films he'd seen, books he'd read, newspaper articles. It's actually got a real, one of the few, if only real characters in there. I think Al Capone is in it briefly, the Al Capone You're quite character. right. As far as I, I'm almost, I can say with quite confidence, he's the only real historical yeah, figure to appear in any so. of them. And of course, Tintin beats him um, and he, course, he topples his criminal empire. But yes, that's right. Of course. Yeah. With, with, with a fair bit of humor as well. Um, then we get on to Cigars uh, of the Pharaoh, where Tintin goes to Egypt and has all sorts of adventures. And then the one that follows on from that is the one which really there's quite a change in it because it's Tintin in the Blue Lotus and Tintin travels to China. And first of all, Again, he'd never been to China, but he'd met someone who certainly had been to China. He made a friend in Brussels called uh, Chang Chong Chen, I think, who was uh, a young, young Chinese student, I think, at the Art Academy in, in Brussels. And I think someone introduced the two uh, and said, well, you should talk to, to Chang because he's, he's Chinese. He'll help you with what China actually looks like. So all the street signs and things um, in that book are real Chinese. Yeah. So instead of him just basing it off, off some, some random book he'd found, uh, and Chang was able to give him a lot of real detail about, about what China was like. And in this book, a lot of it uh, revolves around the Japanese invasion of China in the, in the 1930s. Um, and yeah, there's a real political events going on in that book. Um, and it's a real shift in, in the way he did things. Um, you, we get on to after that the broken ear, which again I say is less uh, political. But he goes to South America and he's dealing with like these wars between two. It's two fictional uh, South American countries, but I mean that there were going on these wars that were I think quite often funded by big corporations from America yeah. and other places. It says there's an arms de- arms dealer in there who is very much based on a real arms dealer, Basil yeah. Basroff. I can't remember if that's his real name. Well, that's the name in, in the book. But it, it, again, there's, there's, you know, people at the time would have, would have recognised these, these parallels to, to real, um, to real um, things. Um, Black Island, again, a bit less, I guess, political, but there's, there's money forging, forging going on, which again was but a thing at the time. 
I think that's his very, that's one of my favorites. And I, you know, I, I'd like yeah. to get into to your favorites, but I, I love um, the, it's very Hitchcockian, the, um, yeah. the, the Black Island, not just sort of the English setting, but, you know, that he's against money forgers in that one, you know, cool. um, and there's this implication and, you know, it's never explicitly stated, but the, the villain is quite obviously a German. So it's yeah. like, is this a, you know, this is in 1939 or 1938, is this a German double agent, you know, working yeah. against the British, but that's a very, very, um, that's why it's definitely one of my favorites, but yeah, um, so yeah, you're yeah. quite right. It's more of a, I guess a crime. That's more of a crime based one, yeah. but there are still, still those political um, dimensions yeah. to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And in that one, he goes to Scotland and he wears a kilt. Um, and it's, yeah, again, it's, it's, a, it's a classic story. Um, and, of course, the, the German guy we're talking about is Dr. Müller, who becomes one of these recurring villains who appears in, in a few more of the, the books. Um, and that's the great thing also about the Tintin books. You've got these the standard um, characters who are in every book, practically Captain Haddock, um, the, the Thompsons, Calculus. And then you've got these guys characters who sort of come back uh occasionally in, in certain books um and in the next book we're going to talk about which is king Otacar's scepter which is the first book that i got that's certainly where one of the classic characters and actually the only real female characters introduced which is bianca castafiori the milanese nightingale is that what they call her the uh yeah that's the, correct the yeah. opera singer who, who's uh yeah quite a character but um so king Otacar's scepter was the first book that i got um, and again, it's very political because I think that came out in about 1938. So just yeah. before the Second World War. But this was the time of Nazi Germany and the Anschluss of Austria, where, where the, the Nazis basically went in, went in and annexed uh, Austria. And in that book, um, they're not dealing with real, real countries, but you, there's his two made up countries, which again come back in other stories. You've got Sildavia and Borduria which I think Sildavia is supposed to be sort of a, a small Eastern European country and Borduria is sort of a fascist stroke Nazi country that, that wants to take over. And there's all sorts of things that go on in that book, but, but that again is, is very political. Um, uh, well, even down to, um, if I can interject just on that briefly, you know, the the order to the, the fourth columnists to sort of begin their, you know, their, their, their coup essentially is signed by the 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 leader of it and it's it's musla um a combination which is pretty obviously a combination of mussolini and hitler like it's uh, you know the it's one of those um occasions you know lots of is made of of verger's um politics particularly you know during his second Mm. world war but i think it does overlook a lot of the fact that there was quite a lot of um political positions we could all you know we should all agree with and there's a lot of it it is very very a complex situation but that certainly is one um one one instance is where Hergé is very clearly taking a stand against um what we would call fascism and also the 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 Bordurians uh the the bad guys as it were they they flying Messerschmitt 109 fighter planes which Tintin steals one of because suddenly it turns Mm. out he can fly as well well actually no he flew a plane (laughs) in, in in uh in uh, in the land of the Soviet, so he's he's a he's a chap of many many talents. I mean, yeah. how he learned to fly a plane that that's never explained, but you know he's he's our hero, so he always saves the day. Um, and of course, then we come on to one of the absolute classics, the Crab with the Golden Claws, which is where he meets finally Captain Haddock. Um, and mm. I think then then the stories really shift a gear a bit because Captain Haddock is is, is my favourite character. I mean, he's he's just 
incredibly funny and adds this real real humor to it uh, i mean he's got an incredible vocabulary of, of swearing at people well it's not actually swearing but it's various insults of that you know are sort of fairly innocent words in themselves but um mm. i mean i don't know have you got a, have you got a favorite character you know, I was thinking about that. I, I actually, I, I probably put it down to so, sort of the last um, character in the, the what Hergé would come to call the the Tintin family. One of the latest additions would be uh, Jolyon Wag, who was the uh, the yeah. insurance salesman, um, who I think Hergé just put him there as, as someone to create you know, to create the most annoying character there is. And, yeah. he, and he, he never fails to really um, irritate Captain Haddock, uh, particularly who's uh, of course not, you know, not the most agreeable person in the best of times. So to have this completely oblivious character, I mean, it's another one of yeah. those things. It's the kind yeah. of character you wouldn't see in like any, uh, you know, in any kind of Western comic, just this sort of insurance salesman with his, yeah. you know, his, his, his wife and his annoying children. Annoying it's just kid. such a great yeah. addition that just flashes it out. It adds so much humor to, to these stories. So I, I'd have to say um, Jolly and Wag's probably, probably my favorite character. Yeah. And he's only in about, I'd say about three of them, three, yeah, maybe I think so. briefly in, in a fourth one. Um, I think book flight seven one four Sydney. I think he's in it very very briefly, but but yeah, he's he's just a very funny character, as you say. This typical sort of well Belgian, but you probably you know he, he exists everywhere in the world. Sort of annoying, uh, and he wears Belgian braces as well, which you know says everything you need to know about the guy. <laughs> but I mean, that's just he, he was just very good at at making these these characters and and sort of um, yeah. Using and you're quite right, people. Michael. Adding adding sort of, I guess, a depth um, that isn't present in in the main in the main character in the protagonist. No. You know, there's no Tintin origin story. You know, there's no inkling that he's got a family or that he's got a past. He is, as you said, he's just sort of there, and he's sort of sort of this means for not only Urshay but for for the readers to just explore these fantastic worlds and to meet these different people it's it's these as you said these supporting characters that really i guess bring the sense of life to it yeah and i I don't think if you think if you think about it i don't think anyone would recognize tintin as someone they'd met in real life i mean as a character but captain Mm. haddock yeah the sort of the the grumpy older sort of you know sea seafaring sea dog chap uh the annoying uh, insurance salesman, the bumbling detectives, the absent-minded, the diva uh, who who thinks she's exactly. she's you know God's gift to music, yeah, the absent-minded scientist, all of those are, are sort of archetypes that one, one can recognise. Um, which, and as you say, just every time you get these characters and they come back, you just get this sort of deeper and deeper layers of of um, yeah uh, comedy and things. Um, and then we get on to the next one, which was Tintin in the Shooting Star, which is interesting for a number of reasons. Because, again, uh, this is, I think, the Second World War had started. Belgium was occupied by the Germans. So he had to be very careful in what he, he did. He certainly couldn't do another King Otakar scepter. So this is more of a sort of adventure story, slightly a weird one. I mean, there's this mm. comet uh, or meteor falls to Earth and, and they go out to, to find it. Um, but all the... Uh, there's a various scientists that, that that go with him on this ship, um, uh, which is commanded by Captain Haddock. And all the scientists, I think, are either from, well, Germany or neutral countries. So there's, there's no British, there's no um, no Americans on there, um, although the Americans do come along later and they're sort of kind of the bad guys. It's, uh, it's very interesting. It's very sort of, and again, probably one of those those 
problematic aspects of it you know at the height of the first world war he's got the you know the german and the neutral countries are the good guys trying to you know progress science and against it you've got these greedy american capitalists led by someone who's quite obviously meant to be jewish um sort of financing it um you know it doesn't take a genius to look into sort of sort of the the implications there and quite a lot's been made of of that one in Mm. particular um and uh, quite a lot of changes were made um subsequently um after the second world war in the original it's the americans are the bad guys in 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 the um revised version it's a fictional country um i think they just they just changed the flag don't they on 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 the front of of the ship um, yeah. But yeah, that, that's another example where Hergé um, got into trouble um, um, because of well, certainly perceived anti-Semitism. Um, and then there's, you know, going back to Tintin in the Congo, where, again, <laughs> it's quite problematic. Um, after that, again, because it's during the war, he can't be too political. We got onto two of some of the best books, The Secret of the Unicorn and uh, Red Rackham's Treasure, which is a straight up adventure story. Uh, basically, Captain Haddock's old 17th century ancestors left behind some model ships and they have to. Um, and excitement and adventure ensues where they're looking for for hidden treasure, etc. And at the end of that story is when Captain Haddock gets his uh, his stately home, which he basically inherited. Uh, well, he doesn't inherit it because I think actually Professor Calculus buys it for him. Um, That's right. With the, with the proceeds from his invention of a shark submarine, as you do. <laughs> Uh, but that is it's called Marlin Spike Ball in uh, in Brit- in English, uh, Moulin Sar in French, uh, Moulin Bon in Danish. Um, and this is like the place where Captain Haddock lives um, in, in, in the yeah. subsequent stories. And it's this large stately home, which is actually based on a real stately home in the Loire region of France. I've been there many, many years ago. It's called uh, Chivagny, I think. But if you look at the pictures of that, uh, Hergé's thought that was a bit too big for Captain Haddock, so he just took off the, the left and the right-hand wing uh, and just used the central part, which and works quite well, actually. But The, uh, the shark submarine didn't bring in enough money to, to purchase the wings as well. Exactly. You know, no, they no, did no, well for themselves, but not, not quite that well. No, no, so it's, it's a nicely sized uh, stately home, uh, and that yeah. becomes Captain Haddock's um, home thenceforth. Um, so after the war... Because uh, they they sort of came out yeah mid mid forties after yep. the war, Ajay got into a fair bit of trouble um, with the uh, with the authorities because I think the paper he'd been working for had been uh, well used by the Germans for propaganda or it was sort of under under the occupiers' control. That's um, correct. Yeah, he actually ended up in prison for well, I'm not sure if it was a few days or a week. Um, but I think various people pulled some strings and said, look, you know, he's he's not a Nazi, which which I don't think he was at all. Yeah. But he certainly got caught up in, in that. And I mean, post Second World War, there was all sorts of confusion about who'd been collaborators and who hadn't mm. and, uh, and all of that. But it, it sort of um, I think it put a bit of a mark um, on him. Um, but um, the next story that came along, the Seven Crystal Balls, that is again, there's a story in there which has to do with the occupation, because I think. I think it came out, well, the album came out after the war, but I think it started being serialised during the war. And yeah. him and his friend, uh, Edgar P. Jacobs, who um, worked with Hergé for, for a while, helped him with backgrounds and, and things like that, and later on went on to make his own um, cartoon series, the um, or comic series, uh, Blake and Mortimer, which, which is a great series. Um, but they went scouting, I think, for a location for one of the, the buildings they wanted to use, one of the houses, 
and were sketching away of this sort of large villa. And then they saw, I think, a sort of car pull up with them. And then several guys in, in, in dark leather coats got out and they realised, I think the house they were sketching was, it was either used by the Gestapo or something like that. So, uh, yeah, they, they, they made a quick retreat because you don't really want to be caught sketching, uh, sketching Nazi houses. But, uh, I mean, that's, that's just one of these nice little stories, I think, that one, well, like you and I, when we sort of start delving into the, the depths of uh, Tintinology, but um, yeah, but again, that's that's the. I mean, Tintin at well, the Seven Crystal Balls. That's again the first, um, first uh, instalment of uh, a two a two book um, story, which then goes on to Tintin: The Prisoners of the Sun, in which Tintin and Captain Haddock go to South America. They go to Peru, get involved with the Incas, all sorts of things like game. Nothing political in that one uh, game because I think it started during. Yeah. Um, very sort of at, you know it's outside of europe it's it's essentially a fantasy realm you know there's yeah. nothing that could tie it to any no. problematic um politics at home yeah but again a story where obviously Ajay had never been to south america had never been to peru but but he'd read lots of books and uh i think some of the pictures are based on pictures from the national geographic so he, well it's he interesting you know uh, by this by this stage, as uh, as I'm sure you know, he was he was very sort of detail orientated um, compared to in those those first maybe three probably up until he mentioned uh, until he met um, Chang, like you mentioned. Prior to that, it was one source is 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 enough make up the rest of out of your head, and it was yeah. Chang who sort of really wanted to represent an accurate China, really imbued him with this you know idea for for having details which is something that's that's you know still lauded as part of the the albums today is just you know the cars are almost you know they're always a identifiable car the machinery is always yeah. something you know he would have these huge expansive archives of just magazine clippings and newspaper clippings and photographs of just things that that um that you know he thought well I'll save that and put it in a story later and you know you you if you go through some of the reference books, you know, of which there's been quite a few released, you can see he's just taken like, you know, a picture of a, of a lemonade salesman in, in, in Eastern Europe and put that yeah. in, in um, the Autocar Scepter. So he was very sort of by this stage trying to ac- capture things a bit more accurately um, than certainly when he first started. Yeah. Well, I, I think he also, by that time, he was a bit embarrassed of the, about the earlier books because, because of the lack of detail. Um, and I think mm. certainly Tintin in the Soviet Union was not reprinted for or in the land of the Soviets, as it's known, was not pr- reprinted for a long time, I think, because he, he just thought it was, you know, it, it was a bit embarrassing. Um, mm. And it was, it was around this time also that I think he started getting assistance and, you know, got people to help him with the drawing or, or he did the initial sketches and things, but the all, you know, the finalizing of the drawings and the color coloring and all that kind of stuff. He got um, he got people to help him with. Um, yeah. And um, it, it, it well, the books just become more and more detailed, um, and and a, a lot of them. Then he, what he did, he redrew or recolored some of the older ones, I think, uh, and brought them out again yeah. in, in new versions. Um, which is probably the ones that most of us us know the, the sort of the ones that we first read are the sort of the, the updated versions. I mean, so something like I think um, the Black Island, I think probably exists in at least three different versions um you're quite right there you're quite right because there was and i've actually i've got one of them here with me yes there's the there's the original sort of black and white version as it was originally done and then there's this there's this sort of uh, sort of blurred out here but sort of this 
second one and then there's the modern version and you know that was certainly when i was doing black island it was it was fascinating to to look at just the three versions of the same story and you know done decades apart each time and how you know the changes each made you know to to reflect the to try and make them contemporary each time so as you as you did say it's it's they're historical documents in a way you really do get such an insight into the world based on, on what they've done but yeah that's quite right by that stage he was sort of he had set up this studio with some very talented um assistants many of whom like you mentioned would become artists in of themselves to sort of re redo those old ones and bring them out to the public yeah 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 well i mean the the uh, the black island i think the one when he redid that which was probably done in the late 60s i mean he actually did go to britain uh on uh to yeah uh, uh, we sent did he send bob demore did he go himself i can't remember but he um Certainly, they, I think they brought back a, a British policeman's uniform uh, and they really sketched everything. And, and so all in the later version, all of the, the trains and the cars are all updated and the policeman's uniforms and everything. You know, the fire engine is all very, very sort of British and, and, and as it should be. Um, but again, you, you mentioned um, the assistants and yeah, a lot of them went on to to do their own things. I mean, you've got uh, Jacques Martin, who did the Alex books and the Franck uh, favorites of mine, uh, Bob Demore, who did his own series called Borelia, I think. Um, and you've got uh, Roger Leloup, who was, he specialized in the technical stuff. So he, he, he did, for example, the, the supersonic jet that's in one of the later books and, and a lot of the vehicles and stuff. And he went on to do a book, a book series called Yokotsuno, which again features, he's very good at drawing technical stuff, spaceships and cars and everything. He, with people, he never really quite got the hang of in the same way, this, this uh, Roger Leloup guy. But um, yeah, he certainly was a breeding ground. Uh, Studio Hergé, as it became known, was, was a breeding ground for lots of great artists. Well, I mean, there's no one better you could probably learn your trade under, is there, than, than you know, the, the greatest um, Franco-Belgian comic artist of all time. It's no surprise. No, no. I, actually, I think he went on to to marry one of his assistants, didn't he? Um, yes, he did. I forget, I forget her name at the moment, but um, uh, Fanny. Yeah, was that his first wife? I can't remember. No, that was Jermaine. Was his his first? Oh, yeah. wife. yeah. So there you go. Yeah, uh, this is why you have a podcast about Tintin. <laughs> but I, I don't know. <laughs> but it's um, again, it's just it's it's, it's fascinating the way. Uh, I mean, again, the politics. Um, because the next book in the series was the um, the land of black gold, which I think started mm. during the Second World War, and then he sort of had to leave it because I think in the beginning of it he does mention like wars brewing and things like that. But when he comes back to it, and I think well late forties, um, the original story it, it's all about the uh, the Jewish the Jews in Palestine yeah. fighting the British and fighting for independence. Um, and that's not the main story about it, but it's certainly certainly part of it. Uh, and it's all about oil and big oil companies. Um, but then in the later versions of that, he sort of it, he sort of gets rid of the, the political aspect, um, uh, certainly, you know, when it comes to, to Palestine. Um, as another example of how he keeps revisiting the books and, and um Trying to and that's of... an interesting one uh, um, because, of course, when he started doing that, there was no um, Captain Haddock. Um, no. But, of course, when he returned to it, Captain Haddock was a character, which if you're ever yeah. reading that book and you don't know why Captain Haddock doesn't make an appearance until halfway through, it's because when he started writing that half, there was no such thing as Captain Haddock. Yeah. So, again, when you look into it, it's it's great to find those yeah, little touches. These, 
and, it, and it's, it doesn't even appear halfway through. It sort of appears in like the last five pages or something. Suddenly, yeah. Captain Haddock turns up, saves the day. Tintin's like, "Where have you been?" Oh, well, I, <laughs> I don't know. It comes up with some excuse why, why he couldn't be there. I think right at the yeah. beginning, he says he's got to go off and, and and be a captain on some ship, and then he goes yeah. off and that. And uh, and I think that's the one where they come back and they find uh, Marlin Spike completely destroyed because um, uh, Professor Calculus has been doing some experiments on something and has basically blown the whole place up, um, which, uh, yeah, Captain Haddock isn't too pleased about, as, as I'm sure <laughs> one, can Im- one can imagine. Uh, and so after, so after being in the Middle East and dealing with uh, oil and stuff, again, a complete shift, because the next two books, Tintin goes to the moon. As you do. As you do. As you do. <laughs> and again, so this is when we come back to the two fictional countries we mentioned earlier in King Ottokar's Scepter, which is Sildavia and Borduria. And in this case, suddenly Sildavia from being this sort of slight, slight uh, small, backwards-ish... Uh, Mostly peasant country. Peasant Eastern European country have suddenly got uh, their own uh, atomic programme and they're building a moon rocket. Um, under the leadership of Professor Calculus, because he's gone from making slightly wacky inventions like underwater shark uh, submarines to building an atomic moon rocket. And of course, he gets Captain Haddock and Tintin roped into that. And again, it fascinates me. Oh, and Snowy, story. of course. They, they, they Snowy. put the dog up. Yeah. Yeah. And they put the dog in a little spacesuit and everything. Uh, again, an amazing story because Hergé, wanting to be as detailed uh, and accurate as possible, I mean, did a huge amount of research into what was known about space travel in, I mean, I think he started in the very late forties on this, this book and it yeah. came out about 1952 ish. Because of course they yeah. were always published. They were published earlier in, in the papers and then the actual mm. album came out. Um, and a lot of the stuff that, that he, you know, he, he uses in that book is, is real, real science. And I think based on what they knew at the time is, is, is it's pretty accurate. It is. And you can sort of see that, you know, as sort of a continuation of this, I guess, um, you know, uh, as a scout, his nickname was, I think, Curious Fox, um, because he was curious about the world, which is a great detail, because you can sort of see, you know, going from thinking about, well, I wonder what it's like in the Congo, I wonder what it's like in America to, well, now I want to know what it's like to be in outer space, you know, it's sort of this natural continuation of this curiosity that always um, comes through in, in his, in his stories. It's, you know, it was only a matter of time before he started looking, you know, into, into outer space, but yeah, you're quite right. It's, um, it's very, you know, it's not, there's no, you know, waving away, you know, the explanation for how they get there. You, at, at the time, this was the, you know, the, the, what was the, the, the forefront of, of scientific knowledge about, about, um, about the inter, interstellar travel. You know, you, you did mention before we started recording how wordy the, the Blake and Mortimer ones were. Mm. There is that, that they are, especially that first one, um, Destination Moon, that's yeah. probably the wordiest one. There's, um, there's, cause, oh, clearly he's quite proud of the research he's done about Ooh. how nuclear rockets work, but he does put quite a lot, quite a lot of calculus explaining how it could theoretically work, which, you know, you learn something from it at least. Yeah, and the, and there's a whole scene where one of the characters, Wolf, uh, Wolf is is explaining how a nuclear reactor works, and uh, but even the quite funny thing is, <laughs> even while he's doing that, Captain Haddock is just going, oh yeah, well that's you know he's just clearly a bit bored by the whole thing, um, and there's still comedy elements in there, which which, yeah. which is great. But again, in that book, they're traveling to the moon. They have an explanation for why 
there is gravity in the space rocket. I think it's because of the acceleration or something like that. But there is a point when the engine cuts out and yeah, zero gravity and they're all floating around and Captain Haddock's whiskey turns into bubbles, which he isn't wasn't too too pleased about. I mean, it's there's there's a lot of science in there. And when uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin did eventually land on the moon for real in 1969, Ajay sent them a, a, a drawing uh, of Tintin and Captain Haddock already on the moon with a big sign saying welcome, uh, which, which yeah. I thought was quite cool. And I've always thought Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, like, well, who's Tintin? Yeah, we've no idea <laughs> who this brand of Belgian comic book is. But uh, yeah, I, I, I've always liked that picture. Um, yeah. And then, so then, from those two books, we go on to the calculus affair, which is one of my favorite favorite books. one mine too. Sort of mid uh, mid fifties, I think, ish, so nineteen fifty four ish, something like that. And again, it's back to Sildavia uh, and Borduria. There's calculus invents this this essentially a weapon, um, uh, which is featured in a book, and they, they show there's a, one picture where they show this book, which is called something like Nazi Weapons of the Second World War, which actually is a real book um yeah and i think it i think it's going for quite a lot of money if you look for it on ebay now because all these tinted because fans. of people like you and i trying to <laughs> trying to <laughs> earn a copy that's want right to buy it. so basically calculus invents this weapon he gets kidnapped by well both sildavia and Bordura. we're back to those two countries are sort of um trying to get hold of him because obviously it's, it's very important uh, tech and he gets well i think he gets uh, abducted by first one country then the other and yeah. it's around this time especially you, you become aware so Boduria in the 1930s was sort of a fascist country now they're sort of considered a I guess sort of an eastern bloc communist style country um yes I think their official ideology is is Tashist after the the mustache of their of their yeah. leader Curvy Tash, yeah, Curvy um, Tash which yes. again there's a joke in that Curvy and Tash and all if you look at where well, I'm sure you know all their symbols are like a little mustache even yeah. the bumpers or, or the grills on their cars got that sort of sweeping moustache look. So it's those little details that just it's just so great to to discover when when you're a Tintin fan. Um, yeah, I mean it's a brilliant book. That's like like you said earlier. I mean that's uh, some of them are like spy stories, and this is like a proper a proper sort of Cold War spy story. Um, and yet we've still got you know we've still got the same characters that you know we love you know captain haddock is still captain haddock you know he's in the mm. middle of this international conflict but he's still you know the same as he always is it's it's using these familiar characters to explore these you know quite serious themes and these quite tense stories which is what's you know you, you never lose lose track of who those characters are they're so well established and they yeah. they respond as as you know they will in in any of these you know going to the moon it's it's captain haddock on the moon you know he, of yeah. course he he gets drunk and 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 stumbles out of the the spaceship the rocket at one stage so yeah it's it's still the same characters each yeah, time there's, even there's, in there's these always that stories. there's always that humor uh and i mean for example it, uh, Professor Calculus being deaf or very hard of hearing. I mean, there's a lot of comedy potential in in that as well. And the Calculus Affair, even though a lot of it is is set in Sildavia, well, they never actually go to Sildavia in that one, but, but Borduria, which is by this time this this communist style country, they're also in real countries. So they're in in Switzerland, in in Geneva, and the amount of detail there is is, is incredible because I think he went on a a scouting mission to to Switzerland and 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 drew all sorts of things from buses to to houses and and everything mm. else, and that's that's what I, what I love about these books. And I think, as you mentioned before, you can look back at you can see the progression in 
in fashions, in cars, uh, in planes, because it's also so very detailed um, and believable. I mean, there's nothing yeah. cartoonish about it in the sense the characters are maybe cartoonish, um, but, but it's very, very clearly drawn, which is why that style of drawing became known as ligne claire, which I think means basically clear line in, in yeah. French. And that sort of um, started a whole genre of, of Franco-Belgian uh, comics, um, a lot of them drawn by the, the guys we mentioned earlier who were Hergé's assistants. Um, mm. Yeah, ab- absolutely one of my, my favourite books. I think because of the detail in it, and the humour and, and, and the excitement of, of, um, of what goes on. Um, and one of my other favourite books is, is the next one that came out, which is the Red Sea Sharks, mm. where... Uh, <clears throat> where they get involved with well, basically human trafficking, slave um, slave trafficking, um, yeah. which is is again quite a serious. I as a kid, I probably didn't really pick up on on the serious seriousness of that. But there's there's armed arms dealing, there's slaves, um, but again, packed into a, an exciting story with humour. Um, an adventure i mean is that is that one of your favorites or oh absolutely yeah it's a very very action-packed one and um you know i think by this stage he was aware he was beginning to get aware of this universe he had created so this was really i think he may have even set himself the challenge let's put as many you know recurring characters or, or characters from the past let's have them turn up in this story and you know they've all got pretty significant roles you know the 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 head of the 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 um the shanghai international um settlement from all the way back in blue lotus is there and you know um yeah dawson that's quite right yeah so he it's i see it very much as him saying i've i've put in the time to make these world let's sort of almost almost, i almost see as like a celebration let's let's bring them together in in this big sort of action-packed story which um which does of course contrast um oh no the contrast with a with with a story that's coming up shortly, but I'm I'm, I'm skipping ahead um, because, of course, the next one is is one of his one of his all time um, all time classics. I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But again, you, you mentioned Dawson, uh, and in the beginning of that book, they meet uh, General Alcazar, who is this recurring character who, way back to uh, uh, Tintin and the Broken Ear, is this South American generalissimo that he meets, uh, who then meets. Years later, in the Seven Crystal Balls, where he's become known as Ramon Zarate and is, is a knife thrower on stage. And then you don't see him again for, for several books and they literally bump into each other on the street. Uh, and he has a, a very small role in that. But again, I think he's a customer for uh, for these weapons that, that Dawson is trying to sell because he's he's, he's always trying to. Uh, start another revolution in, in San Teodoros, I think, which is the country he comes from. Against so General uh, Tapioca, his rival. General Tapioca, yes. I mean, just the names, again, are, are, are brilliant. And I guess, I mean, is that what in modern days you call Easter eggs when you bring back these old characters? I mean, it's sort of, you know, someone who was reading the book for the first time or Tintin book might not recognise him, but other people, oh, yeah, yeah that, that, there's that guy, you know, that they're bringing him back. Um yeah. And interestingly, the, the um, uh, Red Sea Sharks in the original French and the Danish is it's called Coke, Coke on Stock. I don't know how you pronounce it. Coxylesten in Danish, which literally means Coke in the hold or co- uh, cold, the kind of cold in the hold. And that was that was the bad guys, basically code word for these these 
uh, African slaves yeah. that they were, they were transporting literally in the hold of their ships, which, of course, thankfully are liberated by uh, by Tintin and, uh, and Captain Haddock. But, uh, yeah, again, quite quite serious themes uh, in essentially children's books. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's what I've always liked about them, that, that it's, it's a mixture of the, the lovely drawings that I like, the excitement, the adventure, the comedy, but actually also that, that quite often they're dealing with real life problems. Well, that's it. it. It's never, it's never, you know, same for, I guess, some glaring examples, you know, um, Tintin the Congo, for example, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's never, it's never really inappropriate for younger readers, no. you know, even, oh, no. even dealing with these, the, you know, these, the something like human trafficking, it's, it's, um, it's a serious issue and it's treated with gravity, but, um, you know, it's, it, it's still in a way, I think, you know, he never lost, lost sight that he was writing primarily for, for young people. Um, and, you know, this was a, this is a way to, to explore that issue, but still in a way that's, yeah, that's, that's suitable for those, for those readers. Yeah. And it's actually incredible how he did it. Cause it's a sort of a very, he weaves himself through in a very sort of subtle way. Uh, it's never, mm. they never sort of hammering it home or, or mm. uh, and I, as I said, as a kid, you probably, miss a lot of that uh and then as an adult reading you go oh yeah okay i, I see, mm-hmm. see what he's talking about here but from mm-hmm. that big adventure story we come on to something well very different which you you uh, you sort of um, alluded to earlier which of course is tintin in tibet which mm-hmm. i mean is that one of your favorites as well it is you mine. know it, it- it never, it never was as as a young per, as a youngster because you know I want to see the action. I want to see the spies and the guns mm. and the tanks and the bad guys. And you know, it's only sort of again, you know, approaching it as an adult and understanding for what it is. It's it's just as as thrilling as as any of those, but it's a very different kind of adventure. Mm. And it's one with very high sort of personal stakes for Urge. Um, you know, it's one he, you know, it's reflective of of not only his struggles to to reconnect with with Chang from you know the friend he met um early so so many years ago who who had such an impact on his life, but also it was a time he was going through severe, you know, we call it almost nervous breakdowns today. Yeah. You know, he was completely stressed out about his his work his marriage was you know falling apart he was really and you know he's racked by guilt from that he's a, he's a lifelong catholic so he's you know torn torn by these things yeah. and um you know he would tell these stories about having dreams of just whiteness just mm. just pure white and you know the this whiteness haunting his dreams and essentially is his you know psychologist said you've got to find a way to to exercise these demons and you know that's that's sort of the story you know that that becomes these white fields of of um of of, of tibet you know following tintin trying to trying to rescue this this friend from so many years ago yeah and it's it's an incredible story because basically he goes he sort of has a premonition that chang his friend is in danger. Realizes he's been in a plane Sorry, crash. we should say Chang was the name of both Urge's friend, but then he gave Tintin a friend character. called Chang yes, as well. He yes, actually, he should have mentioned that way back in the Blue Lotus. Yeah. He put his friend Chang in there as as a character, who again in the book of the Blue Lotus teaches Tintin more about about China. Um, and yeah, he he and but the, one of the well the reason he hadn't been able to get uh, a hold of the real Chang, we moved back to China was I think he had become um, a victim of the Cultural Revolution um, in the 1960s yeah. in, in China. So, you know, Asia was trying to send him letters and, and they never they were never uh, replied to. I mean, skipping forward, 
uh, Chiang did eventually manage to leave China and they were reunited in, I think, about 19, well, sometime in the 1970s. Uh, and yeah. I think he then, he then Chiang then lived in France after that, or Belgium or France. So there's a, that's a happy ending to that story. Yeah. But, but of course, he didn't know this at the time. He didn't know, he didn't know this at the time. He'd been trying well, for decades to, to sort of mm. um, find Chiang again. Um, and in this story, yeah, he goes to find Chiang. He, he basically travels to Nepal, climbs up in the mountains with um, with Captain Haddock, who's who's rather uh, not too keen on the whole idea. And their guide, uh, is he called Sharky, I think? Sharky? Mm. Uh, Sharky, something like that. Um, and as you mentioned about the whiteness in his dreams, as they progress into the mountains, the pictures just become whiter and whiter and whiter because of all this, all this snow. Um, and it's 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 an amazing story. It's very different to anything he'd done before, but also probably his most most personal story. Mm. Yeah. As you say, he, he was absolutely, I think, fallen out of love with Simpson completely, struggling with the, with the deadlines because not only did he make them as albums, they were supposed to come out as weekly episodes. In uh, by that time, it was Tintin magazine, I think. So yeah. he had this incredible pressure uh, on him. And running because, of course, he's such a perfectionist. He can't he can't just phone it in and do something quick. No. You know, we're talking about all these details he's got to do. Well, that takes time. So you've got the mm. pressure on yourself to do a good job. And then everyone, you know, your editor wants yeah. you to crank out these things. It was yeah, incredibly uh, uh, stressful yeah. time for him. And even though he had all these assistants, I mean, he insisted on doing all the actual drawing of the characters. You know, he, yes. uh, he might have people helping him with backgrounds, cars, and planes and mountains and whatnot. But um, an incredible story. Um, and I mean, uh, I think one I'd, I'd highly recommend um, anyone to go and read if, if they're sort of uh, beginning uh, their Tintin journey. Um, yeah. And I think I think it did actually did actually help him because he sort of came back, I think, with some renewed energy. But yeah. instead of then going on to a massive adventure story, the next book, which again was one I maybe the same with you when I was younger, didn't really appreciate that much because, again, there's no guns, there's no car chases there's no, not much excitement going it's the castafiori emerald which is is that what they call a bottle episode and when they talk about yes yes films where essentially all set, the in one. set in one place it all takes place in marlin spike hall which is yeah. captain haddock's home and of course the worst thing ever that could happen to captain haddock is that the lovely Bianca Castafiori, the opera singer we mentioned earlier, invites herself to stay and he can't get away because he's got a broken foot. So he has to essentially endure <laughs> being there. And I mean, the comedy uh, is amazing. No, it's a, it's a brilliant story. It's, I say story, but, you know, in terms of plot, nothing really happens, no. um, but it's so, it's so funny and, you know, often, you know, creatives will say you get your best stuff by imposing limitations on you. So, you know, the limitations here are, well, you know, there's no, as I said, no guns, there's no bombs. Um, no. You think there might be some some crimes happening, but, you know, it's yeah, a, bit of yeah, a few red yeah. herrings there. Um, and yeah. it's just, it's amazing what can come out of those restrictions. And again, yeah, as a kid, boring, like, well, they're not even leaving the house, like terrible. But you yeah. appreciate it as, as a work of art. It's It's such a... It's such an achievement. I think it really is a testament to, I guess, by that stage, how comfortable he was with the characters and I guess how much he wanted to maybe um, 
sort of forego conventional adventures in 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 favor of I guess challenging himself a bit more. I think with the with the last couple of stories because uh, you know he really did slow down his his pace dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot more I guess um, exploring things he was just interested in rather than trying to turn out particular stories. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, again, there's there's I mean there's some great characters in that. There's there's the chap. Basically, it all starts with. Um, Captain Haddock trying to get this builder to come and fix a step and typical builders he's like oh yes yeah I'll be along next week yeah yeah and, and then of course he, he never turns up and it's just this ongoing struggle trying to get this builder to turn up and fix the blooming step um yeah and yeah of course that's why he's got a he's got a broken foot in the first place because um, I think that yeah the step uh breaks uh and uh, uh yeah and he, and he falls down the stairs but yeah a, a brilliant a brilliant story but as I said earlier, probably one of those as a kid, I yeah probably skipped over quite often because I just thought it was a bit, yeah, there were no guns, there were no planes, there were no exciting, exciting explosions or, or chases and things like that. But a, a very, very clever, clever book. And that's from like the mid, mid 60s, I want to say like 64. I think it's 1960 that five. one. Yeah, is, it, is it really that early? Yeah. yeah it could be, yeah. And well, then there's, there's quite a gap and he comes up with Flight 714 to Sydney which is mm. Australia. Not that he actually ever makes it to Australia in that. Book. No. And that's, I alluded to earlier, that's where it's got the supersonic jet in that was designed by Roger Leloup, a swing wing uh, jet designed by this, uh, well, designed for this uh, billionaire called Caradus, who's a sort of rather unpleasant character. And again, adventure ensues. I mean, that's a proper adventure story. Um but for me, always still seemed a bit lackluster. I don't know. He brings back uh, some of some previous villains. There's um, Alan, who's the uh, used to be Captain Haddock's um, second in command, who's a bit of a nasty piece of work. Who sort of appeared in a few of the earlier books as Rastapopoulos, who's mm. one of the big the big villains. Um, I don't know. How do you, how do you feel about that one? It just doesn't yeah, quite I, work for me. It, it's yeah. I think there's a there's a few things about that. I mean, there's some you know great elements. I think the island setting of that one, the jet, mm. you know, this this um sort of the airport scene at the start is is wonderful, and this this billionaire who turns out to be you know this this really rotten character is great. But just sort of sort of um without giving away too much, it, it's sort of a, a very interesting ending and quite controversial in 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 Tintin sort of circles. Um, Auger was very interested in, in sort of, um, you know, he'd been reading up about, you know, things like telepathy and, you know, mm. psychokinetics, psychokinetics and, and, you know, UFOs. And I think, again, I think that's an example of him trying to maybe put some of those elements in his story, regardless of whether or not they work or not. Yeah. Um, and you've got this sort of, you've got, you know, the reintroduction of, of the, the reappearance of Rostopopoulos, who, as you said, is probably the big bad, you know, there's no one villain throughout the whole thing, but Rostopo- no. if there was one, it would be probably Rostopopoulos. Yeah. And he's very, he's treated sort of like, as a joke in, you know, mm. I, I don't know if, if Auger just sort of stopped trying to stop seeing him, his character as sort of like a threat, but he's, he's sort of, you know, um, uh, what's the process in the military where they take your medals off in front? D, D, uh, D, yeah. um, that, uh, that yeah. process, he sort of, that, yeah. that, that sort of process he goes through, he's ritually humiliated throughout the mm. whole thing, which I think for such, for a character who, when he first appears is so like, so oh, cunning yeah. and brilliant and ruthless. It's sort of it always struck me as an odd choice to sort of do that to your main villain of the series. Mm. Well, the previous book that he was in, which was the Red Sea Shards, I mean, essentially he's a slave trader 
Yeah. Um, and now yeah. he's this sort of this sort of comedy character dressed up in a cow- cowboy hat and cowboy boots and sort of like a Western shirt, a pink Western shirt. And uh, is he wearing a monocle? I think he is as well. Yeah, uh, he is. Yeah, yeah. He always wears a monocle. But um, yeah, it's 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 a funny book. But but again, you've got these, yeah, as you said, these sort of supernatural elements in it, which is something that Hergé had actually explored before. I mean, kind of in Tintin in Tibet, there's like this premonition mm, going mm. on going back to the seven crystal balls and the whole Inca story. I mean, there's a lot of supernatural stuff yeah. going on there. So it's, it's something he obviously was interested in and had um, explored before, but yeah. And in, th- in this, this book, which is, it turns out to be the second to last proper Tintin book. It just, yeah, never really didn't quite work, work for me. Uh, well, I don't know. Do you feel the same way about his final completed story? I, I do actually, I do, which was mm. uh, Tintin and the Picaros, which came out mm. in 1976. Um, and of course, that is one of the notable things for in, in the first um, first scene you see, Tintin is driving along on a moped, which is the first time mm. you see him. You know, we've seen him on motorbikes, but not a little a little moped. He's wearing jeans instead mm. of his brown plus fours. He's wearing jeans with a bit of flair to them. Um, and he's got a crash helmet on with the um, the old a peace symbol on. Uh, which is it's, it's very I suppose you call it woke these days I don't, I, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's it's again it's essentially in that story um, Bianca Castafiore ends up in prison in San Teodoros which is that South American country we talked about before at this point General Tapioca is in in control and his arch rival General Alcazar has a bunch of guerrillas out in the jungle who are trying to overthrow him Bianca Castafiori ends up in prison. So Tintin and Captain Haddock basically go out there to rescue her. And I don't know. It does. I mean, what do you think about it? I, I, I'm sort of, I, I sort of group it in with, uh, you know, the, the way I sort of see it, and maybe this is unfair to, you know, someone who put his heart and soul onto these albums, but I think he, he peaked creatively with Tintin Tibet. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Emerald, Emerald was a bit of a challenge to him to try something different. Mm. I think it really works out. And then, you know, in the, the, those last, you know, um, dozen or so years are only two complete stories. And look, they're fine. They're, they're, oh, there's yeah. nothing bad about them. They're not, you know, they're still beautifully, you know, and they're still fun adventures, but they just sort of lack, like, I guess, resonance. There's not the, the that factor of, you know, there's not the scene of, you know, Tintin next to the shipwreck in the in the um the shark submarine or you know Tintin walking on the moon or or there's just not a moment that or or Captain Haddock you know getting drunk and yelling at um Bedouin raiders you know charging at them there's there's just sort of there's not sort of that that extra x factor that I think marked so many of his of his previous stories um but it is you know talking about General Alcazar as well again looking at that um that change over time you know his first appearance in in the broken ear and sort of just even just look, it's a point I made in the podcast before looking at the way he's dressed in his first appearance versus how in his last appearance, you know, his first one, he's got sort of that very old, you know, uh, 19th century with the epaulets and the, and the sword and the, you know, the, the very sort of traditional martial outfit. And then he's, you know, in sort of camouflage combat fatigues with an assault rifle in his last one. It's just like, wow, this same character is so, you know, just by looking at this, you can see how much that world has changed. Because of course it has, you know, from, from the mid-1930s, mid-1970s, 
that's a huge period of change, you know, yeah, yeah. in global history. And I think it's just great that we've got this, this creative um, work that, that sort of gives you an insight into that. So, you know, so even with the stories that, you know, you wouldn't put in your top five, I think they're absolutely still worth um, analyzing and still worth oh, yeah. There's no yeah. real bad Tintin stories. No, it's, 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 I think it's just when you compare them to, to how good some of the earlier ones are that they, you know, they, they don't quite come up to that level. But yeah, I mean, as you said, General Alcazar. I mean, he's almost sort of Fidel Castro esque with his guerrillas yeah. out, out out in the out in the jungle. Um, and actually, this story is interesting for the fact that uh, actually Tintin doesn't want to get involved initially. He he's not too keen on going off to South America, whereas Captain Haddock is. Normally, it's the other way around. And mm. Captain Haddock's very reluctant to get involved, but of course, always ends up going and joining Tintin. Um, Again, I mean, it's it's political in the sense I think it shows that, uh, well, we're not giving too much away that General Alcazar does end up overthrowing Tapioca and takes over. And, and the last scene is essentially the same as one of the early scenes or early pictures where the uniforms of the military have changed, but there's still the same slum there. There's a, there's a picture of a, a slum in the beginning with some of Tapioca's soldiers patrolling it. And then at the end, there's a picture of a slum with Alcazar's soldiers uh, patrolling. Yeah. It's basically saying that, you know, the government may change, the regime may change, but nothing really changes for, for the average the average person and, and the population. Um, yeah. It's quite, it's quite a, sort of a, a sort of a downhearted way to end that series of, of books, because that is the last published book that ever came out, because that was 1976. And yep. was working on an, another story called Tintin and the Alf Art, uh, mm. which is all about, and sort of the sketches for, very rough sketches exist for most of that book, I think. Um, yeah. And it has since been published, um, just the, the sketches and, and, and the rough dialogue, I think. Um, and that was all going to be about um, the art world, because Hergé was a, a huge lover of art and an art mm. collector, especially actually modern art, sort of abstract yeah. Yeah. And, and pop art. Uh, well, actually, Andy Warhol did did some uh, did some pictures of of Hergé, didn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. He, he was he was a big fan of art. I think did try painting some of his own stuff, which I think one of his friends or an art critic <laughs> didn't didn't rate too much. And I think he, he basically mm. stopped doing it after that. Um, but I think he was always a sort of a bit of a frustrated artist with a capital A. Um, but yeah, so so that was it. That was the last book, 1976, because I think he passed away in was it 1981, something like that. 82, I, 82 maybe 83. 83. Very early 80s, yeah. 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 Um, and that was, yeah, that was the end of, of, of Hergé's career. But, I mean, what a career spanning uh, yeah. 47 years we worked out earlier from 1929 till 1976. Mm. There, there can't be many um, writers or comic artists who've got such a long such a long history and, and back catalogue um well i mean which is quite small it's it's 24 um of the regular regular published albums i i think mm. um but yeah over 47 years that that's that's pretty impressive and and he has yeah. become i mean tintin has become one of these these iconic comic characters well certainly in the west uh well western europe well, all over the world, but for some reason, never really broke through to America. I don't think on on a big scale. 
or Britain either, really. Um, I think it's I the English-speaking do... world just has a different comic tradition. It's just yeah. sort of, as I said, my sort of initial reaction, it's hard to sort of get. It's not a Western. It's not a superhero. It's not an out-and-out spy thing. It's just sort of at odds with, you know, you can't easily classify it into anything. Um, I think that's just the English world in general, certainly in my experience. You know, the majority of, of followers for the Radio Tintin Instagram page and the listeners of the podcast, you know, not a not in the english speaking world so i think it's just yeah it never did manage to gain that that resonance um that it did in in else, elsewhere yeah i have a feeling he's, he's incredibly um incredibly popular in india as well yes I think. absolutely from, from people in india obviously europe um i mean denmark where i grew up there's huge love of the franco-belgian uh comics yeah. i mean so many comics have been translated into Danish. I mean, all sorts of, uh, you know, the, the big ones like, like um, uh, Tintin, but also all sorts of, you know, more obscure ones that, that certainly no one in Britain would have, would ever have heard of. But um, yeah, Tintin to me, I mean, he's, yeah. he's followed me since my early childhood. He's always, always been very, very special to me. And well, it sounds like to you too, that's probably why you've got a podcast. About I it. think so. And and just, you know, just that there is such such depth, you know, there's yeah. there's so much you can look into. The reason, you know, there are the, all these reference books and guides to Tintin and, you know, yeah. it's because they're, they're, they are, you know, um, really deep in terms of that historical and um and cultural context it's it's they you know they're documents and it's something that you know i think is lost in in some of the conversations around you know those more problematic elements it's like well maybe they're not you know maybe there are some things you wouldn't want young children reading um certainly if it's you know offensive depictions you, you don't want young kids reading that and thinking that's okay but but these they still these books still need to be available because they're they're such you know that they're, they're problematic but that's what makes them worth studying it's worth mm. you know I, you know, I love being able to look at someone's creative output and seeing how their individual, you know, um, ideology changed over time and how, how, how the world they were in changed. So I think they are, you know, as entertaining as they are, there is definitely, so, you know, a, an academic interest and a, an intellectual interest in, in those, in those albums. Absolutely. And you can keep, as you say, there's so many reference books and you can keep, um, you know diving deeper and deeper into the detail and finding new details and, and uh, even unpublished drawings and, and all sorts I mean there's such a it's so fascinating certainly to us as Tintin geeks but mm. uh, a while ago on one of your Instagram posts you <clears throat> pardon me um, on one of your Instagram posts you said something like you know is Tintin still relevant or is he going to continue mm. still relevant uh, a lot of mm. people said yeah yeah no we love Tintin of course he is and I think I wrote something like I, I think it's going to be a waning interest. I mean, uh, not from me and, and not from the fans. And I think that's the thing. Obviously all us fans love Tintin and will always love mm. Tintin. But I think I just have a feeling for your average young reader, there will always be kids, obviously who get into Tintin massively normally because they get introduced to it by, by their parents. But I, I feel, I don't know with the sort of the intent attention span of, of the modern world and superheroes and all that kind of thing. Tintin's maybe a bit too, a bit too mild, a bit quaint. too, yeah, a bit too quaint again. What is it? Was it, was it, what is it with this young guy with a funny quiff and plus fours? I mean, what are even our plus fours <laughs> when you're, yeah, yeah. when you're, when you're a young kid in, in 2023, I don't know. What, what, what do you think? What does the future hold for, for Tintin? 
look, it's a fascinating question. It's one I think about quite a lot. Um, I, I think, you know, I think waning is probably the word, you know, and there's, there's a discussion, to, you know, Urge did his you know, 20, 23 albums plus the one incomplete one. That is all the Tintin there is. Mm-hmm. And he made it very clear, do not continue this after I'm done. So in contrast to yeah. something like Asterix, you know, which continues to have new albums today, there's only, there's the, a finite number of Tintin stories. And judging by the, you know, the, the, the path taken by the, the rights holders, you know, the, the Urge estate, they are mm-hmm. very, um, very litigious famously and they are yeah, very yeah. strict about enforcing um you know t- tintin copyright which you know on one hand that's great it means you don't get you know this overabundance of this and mass commercial commercialization of this character he's not everywhere he's not on you know packets of chips and you know in every single advertising commercial he's not doesn't have 50 different cartoons he's not overexposed that's the good side the bad side is like it becomes restricted to people like you and me who already know it and already, you know, interested in it. There's, there's less chance for, for ordinary kids to be exposed to it and, and to, to come to know it. And, you know, unless someone, you know, a parent or an uncle, you know, gives them a a book, they, they will not, you know, know about it. Certainly not in, not in the English speaking context. Mm So, you know, I, I don't know, I would hate for it to just, there, there is, there is a large perception. I think it is quite well-founded that, you know, the, the skew, the, the fan base skews, you know, older and, and male only. And, yeah. you know, um, yeah. which, which me, which says to me, there's not enough young people getting into it. And I think we both talked about how, you know, it, it's great, but it, it, it's interesting. I don't, I, in the current trajectory, I don't know how you could get more, you know, insight, more eyes onto, onto this great series. Um, you know, which is, yeah, I don't, I don't have any easy answers about that, but I think waning yeah. is, is, is probably a word I'd cautiously add. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a big industry in, in figures and collectibles and all sorts of things, Tintin related, but I feel mm. it is, it's adults, buying its adult fans buying all the figures because they're not cheap either i mean there's um no i've got several of the cars and and figures and things but but Mm. certainly not cheap and certainly not intended for children i guess the way Mm. to get them into them might be the cartoon series but i mean that's gosh how Mm. how old is that now 20 years old maybe Um, yeah and that's the thing. If you make a new one, you know, do you have to only use the the, the Tintin stories that exist? Because, you know, that's mm. only, as we said, 23. And the, let's face it, they're not going to adapt Tintin the Congo or Tintin the Soviet. So that's even that's less. So not, do you yeah. then only have, you know, those ones, you know, I don't know how much you can, you can sort of get out of, of, of this very finite um, product. You know, yeah. I'd hate for it to become just this academic artistic curiosity because as, as important as that is there is so much entertainment and so much you Absolutely. know life and so much you know enjoyment for little for young for young readers to have i ha- i'd hate for that to be lost in the future yeah, and, and important messages and, and history i mean all all in in you know a small package i mean 62 pages i think um all the, yeah. the albums are standard uh, yeah which um i mean is incredible but i think certainly you and i are going to continue to be fans uh for a very very long time um now where so you've got this podcast what's it called and where can people find it yeah it is called radio tintin um you can find it on spotify or all good podcast apps i should warn you like i say podcast it's a bit misleading because podcast implies a sort of sense of regularity and consistency maybe think of it more as a thesis stre- thesis stretched out over several years so i'll yeah. um 
you know the episodes uh because i do like to dive in deep they do take quite a mm. while to prepare so um yeah um don't you know not a new episode every week but i like to think it's it's definitely definitely worth um worth the wait for the episodes and if, in the meantime i am posting regularly on my instagram page which is just at tintin.podcast or you can go on to uh, facebook.com slash radio tintin podcast and um you can find the posts i'm always posting stuff about tintin there um but uh hope you enjoy it and uh and oh absolutely absolutely well i mean um i mean i can heartily recommend the podcast and and the instagram page it's always interesting uh, pictures on there and discussions between between fellow tintin fans so yeah. um yeah no i mean well done on well done on, on starting the, the the podcast um because i love listening to it but um oh great thank you i think yeah that's probably a good time to wrap up this podcast which is absolutely mm. very regular but um as you listeners know by now i just talk about things that are interesting so we've gone from Britpop to royal style to now tintin so um tune in next time to find out what we'll talk about uh, then but uh, alex thank you very much and thanks uh, for talking to me all the way from melbourne australia and uh, well until we see each other again goodbye thank you michael